Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer. Today, we are joined by Uncle Bob Martin, uh, co-author of the Agile Manifesto, uh, of Clean Coders, software engineer of uh, somewhere around 50 years. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, half a century. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we have a, a couple of topics to talk about today. Uh, one of them that, uh, or both of them, I know, I know you talk about quite frequently, but for our audience that hasn't heard about it, um, one of the things that you often talk about is software engineers' ethical contract with society. Yes. And uh, what for our audience, do you mind uh, explicating a little bit about well, what? This is something you know. The most most programmers didn't get into this business because they wanted to enter into an ethical contract with society. You know, most of us became programmers because. You know, we we touched a computer once and wrote an infinite loop and printed our name on the screen. And we're so impressed with our immense powers and capability that we wanted to do it for the rest of our lives. Uh, and all of a sudden, here we are in this world that is utterly dependent upon software. Nothing happens in our society without software. Uh, and this gets deeper and deeper as the years go by. There is nothing you can do in modern society that software does not somehow control or monitor or mitigate or lubricate or somehow get involved with. A lot of people actually monitor their sleep. So not only are your waking moments dominated by software, but so are your sleeping moments. If you have a home security system, there's software involved with that. If you've got a microwave oven, there's software running in the microwave oven, dishwasher, the washing machine, the car, your car is loaded with software. Many of us now turn on our lights with software and our thermostats have software in them. Software runs everything. Our television sets are, are if we still have recorders, VTRs. Most people don't now. We stream our entertainment over the internet. We we use uh, uh, the internet for telephone calls. This thing is being done over the internet right now, this whole interview. If you look at a normal person, just some regular person uh, in our society, they are interacting with the software system probably on a minute-by-minute, minute, if not a second-by-second second basis. And that so, is the level of dependence that mm -hmm. our society has slowly but inexorably uh, come into. And who's at the base of all that? Well, it's us, us programmers. We're the ones who write all that code. So our society has become deeply invested in our behavior, in our performance. And we, programmers, don't much recognize that. This ethical contract that so far remains unexpressed is implied. Society expects us to behave in an ethical way. Society expects us to take care of their needs and their their. Uh, um, situations. They, society expects us not to violate the moral rules that we have implicitly uh, taken on. And that's what I mean by this ethical contract. So what parts of 
software engineers' ethical contract with society, do you think uh, new software engineers or software engineers at large are are most ignorant of, <laughs> or or perhaps the the part of the ethical contract that you find most interesting? So, so the the normal software developer works at a company, um, works for uh, on a team, or they're working on some application or some some God knows what. And their primary concern is time, schedule. Uh, they have to get their software written by certain deadlines. This is all, of course, very artificial. None of those deadlines actually matter unless, of course, you're writing uh, you know, tax software and you've got to get it out by April. Well, whenever the IRS website actually comes online, but but okay, you've got to get it out by the the tax deadline. If there are laws involved, then deadlines really have meanings. But most of the time, deadlines are are completely artificial and are created for the purpose of pressuring software developers to go fast. Mm-hmm. And software developers uh, accept this. They accept the idea that speed is of the essence, that, that they must write their code fast. And that because of that, the ethical issues that you and I have been talking about take second place to schedule. If I can ship with a tolerable expectation that things aren't going to blow up horribly, I'm probably going to ship so that I can meet my schedule. Makes sense. Now take a look at some of the fiascos that have occurred because of this mindset. And the one that springs to mind immediately is healthcare.gov. No matter how you feel about the politics of the issue of, of Obamacare, that was a law that was passed by the Congress of the United States, signed into law by the President of the United States. And that law stated that a software system would be up and running by a specific date, October something, 2013. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. But they turned it on. <laughs> and you, there had to be people in there. There had to be software developers on the teams of the people who wrote that code going, they really shouldn't turn this on. You know, it's really not ready. But they're going to turn it on. How many developers were hiding under their desks that day, you know, waiting for what they knew was going to be a horrid explosion? And of course, it was a horrid explosion. It was, it was an utter disaster. And it, it, it almost derailed the law. This is the, the, uh, the profound effect that you and I can have on our society, our misbehavior in that particular adventure almost took that law down. Didn't quite make it. Another one to look at is um, the Volkswagen fiasco. This is a really interesting one, right? Because here's a, uh, a case where some software developers under pressure by their management wrote code explicitly to violate the law. Wrote code that cheated and lied in order to pass the EPA test rig. And, you know, it's a very, very interesting uh, example of how, you know, engineers can get caught up in the technology and not worry about the laws. Imagine sitting in a room, a, a conference room, and a manager comes in and says, okay, guys, we got to figure out a way to defeat the California EPA testing equipment. How are we going to do that? And a bunch of engineers are sitting in a room going, oh, crap, well, geez, uh, you know, 
we could do that because when they put us on the test rig, uh, the car is not moving, but the wheels are spinning. Now, how could we detect that in the code? Well, you know, there's a GPS receiver in there. And if the GPS receiver shows that we are not moving, but our wheels are spinning, then we must be on a test rig. And, and then we could change the fuel mixture and the engine temperatures so that it doesn't emit all those horrible nitrous oxides. You can imagine that that discussion happening and the engineers getting all enthusiastic about this clever scheme and then writing the code. What was wonderful about, or wonderful is not quite the right word, what was remarkable later was the CEO of Volkswagen North America testifying before Congress, who, when asked, how could you have let this happen, replied by saying, well, it was just some software developers who did this for whatever reason. Yep. <laughs> now, that's a very powerful indication that the people who are going to be blamed are the software developers and not the managers, because the managers will be able to deflect. How could they possibly have known? They don't write code. They can't read the code. We're just the innocent managers, the innocent executives. It was the evil software developers who did this for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, a couple of those software developers are now in jail. Yep. So it, se it seems like there's a really malicious power dynamic at play, um, specifically in the Volkswagen case. Um, that one clearly was malicious. <laughs> um, no about that. Less, less so perhaps in the government or healthcare.org or healthcare.gov case. Yeah, that, that was just sheer incompetence. <laughs> so what, what is, what's kind of the, the prescription you have in mind besides that this ethical contract with society exists, what's kind of, do you have anything prescriptive for people who are working at a Volkswagen? Well, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, real easy prescription for the folks at Volkswagen. Don't lie. <laughs> and, and that's generally a pretty good formula uh, for software developers. Don't lie. Now, uh, how do software developers lie? Um, manager walks into the room, team room, uh, looks at all the developers, says, how's this project going? And everybody says, oh, pretty good. That's a lie. <laughs> you know, they're lying through their teeth. Why? Well, they don't want to admit that things are behind schedule or they're, or they're unsure of how things are going to go. And they, they don't want, you know, managers getting upset. And so they tell a soft little lie to encourage the manager to go away. Because what they want is the time to focus and work on the problem. And they don't want to be interrupted by meetings and managers. So they'll tell a nice soft little lie to make the manager go away. Another way software developers lie uh, is by um, facing down a manager. Manager comes and says, I got to have this thing by Tuesday. Developer says, there's just no way I, I can get this done by Tuesday. Uh, you know, I, I can't work the miracle. And the, and the manager says, look, got to have it by Tuesday. Will you at least try? And this seems like such a reasonable request. Oh, of course, I'll try. And that's a lie. You're not going to try. There is nothing you know to do to change your behavior to try. What you're doing is you're, you're lying to the manager by letting the manager go away, thinking that you are going to do something different. But you're not going to do anything different. You're just going to write the same code you were going to write before at the same pace you would have written it before. And so no change has really happened. That's a lie. 
So, man, you know, software developers get caught in this trap of telling the soft little lies to management so that management goes away. And management goes away thinking that maybe something good will happen. And then, of course, you know, a couple of weeks later, management is completely surprised because things things didn't work out the way it was supposed to. I'm I'm almost certain that this is what happened with healthcare.gov. There were just lies told up the chain. And it might even have begun with truth. You know, one one software developer might have said, no, it's impossible. But his boss softened the message a little bit and said, well, it's probably not possible. And then his boss said, well, they're working on it. And then the boss above that said, you know, I think they're going to get it. And and the message as it rippled up the authority chain just got softer and softer until it, a no turned into a yes. One one thought I'm having as you're describing these scenarios is how they might arise from a mis- miscommunication much earlier in the process, for example, in, in hiring, where a business or a governmental institution might um, have an a outcome they desire um, and go about interviewing other human software engineers to see who might be capable of doing what they need done on whatever time frame, And it's hard not to be a yes man when your uh, compensation's on the line. Well, so yeah. yeah. Even- if the interview question is, can you get this done by next Wednesday? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a job you want. <laughs> on, on the other hand, if they tell you, if they tell you we are paying you know, enormous sum of money. <laughs> and that's the interview question. It's, it's, uh, it's, it becomes a race to try and figure out how to answer the other interview questions that, that are set up to gauge whether somebody is, or are a proxy for whether the person's capable of, you know, getting healthcare.gov up or, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that certainly happens at the at the much higher level of the contractors, right, where, where mm-hmm. the contractors will simply say, yes, we can do it. We can do it. And then and then they have to figure out a way to make it happen because they've been lying through their teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and of course, you know, then bad things happen. And the way software, you know, in our country and probably in the whole world works is that everybody lies about it. And then the lies eventually surface and and everybody pays double and we have to get the system done anyway. And everyone kind of expects that this is how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's an ethical problem with that because of this immense dependence that we are creating inside our society. Good, good example of this. Um, how many manufacturers of thermostats thought that their thermostats would be recruited into an army of bots to attack the political enemies of a certain faction. Not many. Not <laughs> many, right? So how concerned were they with, you know, simple security issues? And of course, they weren't. They're thermostats, right? They're in your house. They're not going to be used as a political weapon. Well, of course they are. Anybody who's been subject to a distributed denial of service attack knows that it's all the little thermostats and the the vacuum robots and all the little Wi-Fi devices out there that get recruited by these uh, really nasty people who who then use them in a in an army to attack you. 
So again, that's very interesting, right? This this level of dependence that our society has developed on software has created all these unintended consequences. And at the bottom of it all are the software developers. And so the software developers, and you asked me for prescription, here's another prescription. Sure. Software developers need to understand the ethics of the situation they're in. I like to... Um, uh, make it akin to uh, an oath, the doctor who makes who takes the Hippocratic oath, you know, first, do no harm. Uh, something like that for software developers, I think, is essential, just, just as an awareness of the impact that even the most innocuous little bit of code running in a thermostat can really have on our society. Mm-hmm. I think that that aspect of the ethical contract I find s- super interesting is cases where there's not malicious behavior but ignorance of the risks, uh, like in the in the Internet of Things denial of service case you're describing. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think the the ignorance part is is really interesting because there are you know I don't know at this point there's tens of millions of software engineers on planet earth probably probably yeah, more. the number uh, the number uh, is is probably in the tens to hundreds of millions it's an incredible amount of people and i i think the cases where people who are new to the field are coming in and aren't familiar with the risks like you're describing security risks um aren't familiar with how long it takes to build things. <laughs> um, <laughs> we were uh, we were talking before recording about a couple other instances of of risks in software building. One was uh, the IRS outage from Monday this week, filing this Tuesday. Um, I'm sure I'm sure no one. Uh, you know, they was, should pay us for those days. Yeah, no, they pay us interest fine on the government. <laughs> yeah. Oh, de- definitely. <laughs> we can write that into the code. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> based on based on uh, some of the congressional grilling that Mark Zuckerberg faced last week, I'm not sure if they'd be familiar with how how that might be structured in law. <laughs> but um, another instance that I that I think our our audience could relate to that you also mentioned to me that I think is another great example of ethical contract and and risk ignorance is the case of Knight Capital. Oh God, the stock trading firm. Jeez, oh, do, do you mind relating that story? <laughs> well, as I recall, this is how I recall this. Right, mm-hmm. Knight Capital was one of the companies in New York that that pioneered the idea of taking very large trades and hiding those very large trades by chopping them up into a bunch of tiny little trades. And then they would scatter those tiny little trades across the network uh, and then gather them all up together at the end and it would turn into one large trade. And the reason they want to hide it is so that other traders don't see a big trade and then make decisions based on that. So they had this algorithm that did this chopping business, chopped up trades. I think they called it Mars or something like that. And this was, I don't know, maybe this was 10 years ago or something, something like that. And then um, over the years, they uh, they used it. They they found a better algorithm, and they replaced the old algorithm with the better algorithm. Uh, but they did not delete the old code. 
the algorithm for the old system was still in the code. They just bypassed it with certain flags. And the flags they used were in the incoming requests, which is interesting. So then along comes a new tax law, and the new tax law uh, requires a different level of processing for certain kinds of trades. And some software engineer somewhere said, hey, there's this unused flag in the incoming request. We could use that. So they used that and, and were unaware that that would turn on the, uh, the old algorithm. Uh, but that was okay because they had bypassed that in the new software. So nothing bad should have happened. And they loaded it up on a server and the server seemed to work just fine. And so they loaded it up on all the rest of the servers. And this is sometime late at night, right? Uh, and it looked like it was working just fine, but they forgot one server. They just left one server with the old code in it. And so as they turned the whole system live, uh, these transactions start coming in with this funny tax code in it. It triggers the old algorithm in one server. And all of a sudden, this one server starts chopping up trades. And, and uh, one thing they forgot was that the, uh, the back end that gathered all the, everything back together uh, hadn't been turned on. So the, the uh, system went into an infinite loop making all these little trades. And they were enormous. It had a huge effect. The SEC called them up right away and said, hey, guys, you're making tons and tons of little trades. Are you sure you want to do that? And the software developers panicked and said, oh, crap, man, something's wrong with our code. And so they put all the old code back in all the old servers and multiplied the problem by an immense amount. And in effect, they made, I think it was $1.3 billion in bad trades in 45 minutes, which they had to undo. And, and the, in the undoing, they lost $450 million. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's like in 45 minutes, <laughs> that's yeah. $10 million a minute. Uh, and this all happened uh, while the CEO was asleep. He had broken his leg or something like that recently and, and was out for the count and woke up the next morning and he didn't, didn't have a company anymore. The vultures had came in and, and, bought it out from underneath him. That's, that's just a, a sad little story of a few software developers who made a couple of rather innocent mistakes and cost the company $450 million and cost the company its existence. Mm -hmm. I think, I think they still exist, but they're under different management. Mm -hmm. I, that, that story in particular makes, is incredible to me. I, I worked in I finance. I have told Exactly wrong. <laughs> no, no, I, I think I think you kind By of. This time it's an urgent or urban legend. You know? No, I, I think I think it uh, my, blow for blow. That's I think that's a pretty accurate uh, breakdown of the events that happened. Um, I, I find that story so interesting because uh, I had I had a day when I worked in finance quite like it, where there was a piece of software we used to track our profits or losses over the course of a day. It was a, I remember it was a, uh, there was a button that you had to press at the beginning of every day to reset. And there wasn't a way apparently to automate resetting. No, there's no way. <laughs> no way we can no, automatically reset. You have to push the button every 188 minutes. And I came in one day and I forgot to press the button and I spent the whole day trading. And then at the end of the day, somebody came up to me worriedly and... Did you push the button? And they didn't even know what the problem was. They didn't know it was the button. Um, I thought I had just made 
something like 85,000 euros in one day, which is at the time something like over $100,000. I was pretty ecstatic. That was a great deal more than I was making per year at the time. And uh, somebody had to come over and correct me. Oh, looks like you actually need to press the button. And when we press the button, turns out I'd lost 120,000 euros. Which at the time was something like 150k, which was over double my salary at the time. So, I I had a I had a health scare at that point. I bet that, was, <laughs> that was before I got into software and before I realized how how insane it was that um, that my my peers, my coworkers, the software engineers would would tell me that it's not possible to automate resetting <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, no, no. Which was There's a, no way. You have to the <laughs> and and to be fair to them, it was uh, it was totally a business constraint, and I'm sure they had other things that their management was breathing down their neck about, um, which may may not have you know been about reducing risk profile of the business due to process problems, but certainly was expensive for my mental health and physical health and the business's health. You can imagine that the software developers uh, who are writing that system understood that there was a a risk, understood the problem of imposing this manual step and and may have even communicated that Mm -hmm. to managers. And maybe the managers said, well, okay, you're right, but um, we'll absorb the risk because we've got to get these other things done first. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of the Internet of Things issue that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. The um, How many software developers in those companies understood that there were security holes and that those security holes could be misused and then communicated that to their managers and the managers said, well, we're not going to worry about that right now. Mm-hmm. So and that, and that gets into a very interesting situation. Who has the responsibility? Now, um, the guys at Volkswagen came along, the managers of Volkswagen clearly went to the developers and said, hey, solve this problem and do it by lying and cheating. Who has the responsibility? Now, clearly the managers do, but apparently the government of Germany decided that the software developers did as well, that following orders was not a good enough excuse. Mm-hmm. What about the developers in the Internet of Things case, right? Do they have a good enough excuse to allow this, you know, distributed denial of service nonsense to take place? Is it good enough for them to say, well, we kind of thought this might happen, but our managers told us not to worry about it? Do they have a case or do they bear responsibility? Uh, The case of um, uh, that you were just talking about, the little button there. That little button It's kind of an obvious flaw. Who bears the responsibility there? Mm -hmm. Clearly, you know, the business probably had a big, big, a lot to do with it. But did the software developers properly communicate to management the real level of risk here? Mm -hmm. Or did they just kind of wave their hands and say, well, you know, it's kind of yucky to have a manual button. And then, you know, managers say, well, we'll we'll deal with that later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's very interesting. How Where is the level of responsibility? Who has the ethical burden here? And and the reality is that it, it always comes down to the software developer. That's where the, the final little bit of ethical, ethical responsibility lives. Software developers are hired 
for not for their ability to write code, although that's important, but more important than that, it's their ability to assess the risk and the damage of certain actions. Software developers, engineers in general, are hired for their ability to say no to management, to protect the business from things that could go horribly wrong that managers don't understand. Mm-hmm. And when we, software developers, do not take on that responsibility to say no in extremely strong terms, in strong enough terms, then we are violating the ethics of our position. A really a horrific example of this was the Space Shuttle Challenger, mm-hmm. where the engineers uh, of the solid rocket booster based in Utah, right? The guys at Morton Thiokol knew, they knew that those oil rings were not, were not well adapted to the temperatures that they planned to launch at. And they, they did everything they possibly could with perhaps one exception to get management to, to scrub that launch. They, they, they went so far as to walk out of the room where the launch was being televised because they expected the thing to blow up on the pad. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the paper trail, right, the, the engineers at Thiokol wrote horrific memos. They, they complained bitterly. They said, you can't launch. And then eventually the managers at, in uh, Cape Canaveral um, overrode them all, had a little private meeting and said, well, we're going to launch anyway. And uh, clearly the managers were idiots and, and deserved to be fired. And most of them were. And they had a lot of uh, moral <laughs> guilt tacked onto them. Yeah. But think about the engineers, right? They knew. Managers didn't know. Managers were playing a game. They were gambling. The engineers knew. And so what level of responsibility did they have? They followed all the rules. But should they have gone above and beyond those rules? Should, for example, the chief engineer at Morton Thiokol have gone to uh, Dan Rabbit? And said, hey, look, this thing's going to blow up. He would have lost his job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or ran out onto the launch pad, <laughs> waving his uh, arms. He was in Utah. It would have been tough for him to get to the launch pad. <laughs> but he could have done that metaphorically, right? He could, have, he could have gotten the media involved. And I don't want to second guess the guy because I imagine he has nightmares about this to this day. Mm-hmm. But you know, where does that... Where does the responsibility of knowledge end? And it ends with us. It ends with the with the developers. Our, you know, it's our fingers on the keyboards. We hit those keys. We type that code. We're the ones that say, okay, ship it. So I'm very interested in what happens when we fail to uphold the ethical contract. Uh, I know you've talked talked about this publicly before, but what are, what are some of the outcomes of, of people in our field failing to, to do, to, to fulfill their contract with society? Well, so far, the, uh, the, the consequences of this have been uh, minor, especially to the software developers, with, with the exception of the Volkswagen case where a couple of them went to jail and deservedly so. But most of the time when you fail to hit the button or you ship code that is used in ways that you didn't that maybe you thought was possible but didn't warn your managers enough about 
most of the time, the the consequences are nil, none. There's almost no downside to violating the ethical contract while maintaining your uh, stature at the company. If you ship on time, but there are bugs, that doesn't harm you as much as shipping late. As a society, and as, and as, a, as a society of programmers, we have come to expect that bugs and defects are simply normal and to be expected, and everyone out there should simply expect that the software that we send them won't work right. <laughs> and this is, this is a very sick and ethically challenged attitude. And it's one that pervades everywhere. I, I, I mean, do, have you seen where people will upload the beta version? <laughs> right, right. So a beta test, right? A beta test is when you take a very carefully selected audience and you tell that very carefully selected audience, guys, this software is not going to work and we want you to find all the bugs in it. So please, you know, use it in anger, but be careful because it's not going to work. And nowadays, we've just given up on that whole carefully selected audience, and we just put it up on the website and say, well, it's beta. Use it at your own risk. Might work, might not. <laughs> that attitude is is sick. There's a sickness there. It's an abrogation of the, of the expectation that our customers and users have that we're actually doing a good job. Speaking of sickness... <laughs> <laughs> this is a nice segue, I think, uh, to comparatively medical practitioners uh, and uh, drug producers. Uh, there's no there's no beta process for for uh, for medicine. I guess actually there is one, which is the FDA approval process and clinical trials. Yes, right. Something that I think we can draw a parallel about with medical practitioners who, who very directly deal with people's health um, and are tightly regulated is that uh, in order to be a practicing medical practitioner and be able to practice specific procedures, uh, you need a, a license accredited by a specific designated organization, whether that's the AMA or the Nursing Association on a state-by-state -state basis in the United States. you see anything like that in the future for software engineers come some cataclysmic violation of uh, software engineers' um, ethical contract with society? I, I think it's certainly possible. It's possible that um, some kind of licensing will become the law, at least for certain kinds of software developers. And uh, an obvious case would be uh, software developers who, who write code for medical devices. Mm. Um, you, might, you might expect in the future to see some kind of, of government licensing of those kinds of, of developers or developers who work with uh, uh, avionics or air, aircraft control software uh, or developers that work in... Uh, the software that controls automobiles or elevators or microwave ovens or dishwashers or uh, telephones or anything that might 
upset the social order, which is really just about all software ever, with the possible exception of video games, although I wouldn't be surprised about that either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it seems to me that some kind of of licensing is eventually inevitable. What What my hope is is that the software community will undertake that goal themselves and not force government into the position of of doing it themselves because the government will do a terrible job of it. This is what doctors did, right? Doctors actually actually managed themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? They they created their own rules and they enforced their own rules. They created their own kind of governing body. Uh, lawyers did the same thing. And then government came along later and said, "Hey, we got to regulate you guys." And doctors said, "Well, here we've got this whole superstructure already built." We do it ourselves, and government said, "Oh, that's great. We'll we'll just use that." Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I'm hoping we do as a as a body that we come up with our own our own rules, our own disciplines, our own ethical standards, uh, and then in, and somehow enforce them with a, a licensing kind of kind of deal. I, I don't know if licenses are the right way to do it, or perhaps some kind of membership in a guild. Mm-hmm. Um, but something like that, some some way for a company to know that they're hiring a a software developer who actually knows how to develop software and has um, has committed to upholding the ethical contract. Mm. So one one thought I'm having as you're describing this, and that might be a difference between the medical, legal, and software engineering fields is that in medical and legal, uh, to to receive a physical procedure, you need to be, or to take a, a pill, you need to be physically near your doctor <laughs> or near the regulated, you know, uh, pharmacist that can give you whatever uh, medicine you want to take. And same thing in, in law is, to utilize a lawyer's services, you you in court at least or in depositions, you need to be physically at an American courthouse if you're in America. With software, software can be distributed or and developed anywhere. So I'd imagine it's it's just a harder problem, perhaps, to coordinate licensing for our profession internationally or cross borders. I mean, there's still yeah, you think. <laughs> I mean, it happens every day that that people collaborate cross borders and internationally, but to create regulations that are cross border and international is is perhaps a, a much uh, much more difficult task than regulating medicine and law as a profession. Um, yeah, I think that's probably true, and I, I really don't have the answer to that. Uh, you know, our would it be a consumer regulated thing where um um a a software product that was developed by licensed developers got a particular kind of stamp on it and then the consumers could look at it and say well i want those and and not those other ones that don't have that stamp i don't know um it's interesting to me though that our our the dependence that our society has on software convinces me that eventually society will demand some kind of control over the quality of that software, which at the moment is abysmal. Mm -hmm. In lieu of there being licenses that software 
engineers can get. I mean, there are many, but none of them have much force. <laughs> Um, there are there are walled garden software platforms like uh, the A- Apple App Store, um, uh, certain browser applications that require uh, QA process. Uh, this isn't imposed by society, but rather by companies like Apple, uh, where in order for your software to appear on their platform, you need to pass some uh, <laughs> some. Uh, Maybe Pretty rigorous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if, if there's other walled gardens that, that uh, where, where the cost benefit lies for a platform to impose these kinds of maybe manual or automated, you know, uh, quality analysis steps. To- that's, that's actually a very interesting observation. And it's one that I hadn't thought of before, that maybe the mechanism of this, you know, quote, licensure, unquote, is really at the level of the platform, like the Apple App Store, uh, where if you're, uh, if you're uh, looking for software to use, you go to a, a well-trusted source that you know in, investigates that software very thoroughly before they try to sell it to you. Mm-hmm. Maybe that kind of thing is going to expand. I've always looked at the App Store as an inconvenience mm-hmm. uh, because of the the rigorous controls that they they certainly do adopt. Uh, I hadn't thought of it as the mechanism of regulation, so that's interesting. And thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. I it it also makes me wonder. That's um, it, a pretty expensive cost to pay. Um, for the platform, <laughs> especially yeah. since my impression is they actually do manual testing of your app when you submit it to Apple. They have a, a warehouse of, of contractors, I would guess, that uh, have your app installed on their test phone and they click through. So it's a pretty expensive uh, service to offer to both developers of the platform and to um, end users of, of App Store apps. Um, so, which costs, of course, is prohibitive. Uh, one, one other thing that I find really interesting about walled gardens like the Apple App Store that you and I have talked a little bit about is in the event that software engineers fail to uphold the ethical contract, you get you know, the government imposing that you must use specific programming languages. And you see that not just from the government, but also from um, closed garden software development platforms like the Apple App Store, where they require you to use Objective-C or Swift. Or Swift. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, w- I'm wondering if there's a parallel there as well, where uh, <laughs> failure to up- uphold the ethical contract leads to the walled gardens telling you, you must use programming language X and you aren't allowed to use Lisp. <laughs> <laughs> So a, a very interesting example of that. There's there was an um, a an application that you could get for the iPhone or the iPad uh, that that was a lovely little Lua uh, engine, graphical Lua engine, and very easy to use. And you could write lovely little applications in it. And Apple got very concerned about this because it made it possible to write applications that would execute on an iOS device that were neither sold through the App Store 
uh, nor written in Objective-C or Swift. Mm -hmm. And so they so constrained the ability to take the source code of these little applications you could write out of the application itself that they made it completely impossible to share programs between devices. I could write a little program on my iPad to do something clever, but there was no way I could get it to anyone else. And every, every time a little hole developed that somebody figured out a way to squirt that source code out to the internet or something, Apple would close that hole. Uh, so I think you're, I think you're onto something there. These, these little app stores and gardens are going to keep very strict control over language and platform. And that's, that's fascinating. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I, we're coming up on an hour and, uh, I wanted to check with you if there's any topics that, uh, you think we, we might've missed that, that we should cover. Oh my goodness. There's gotta be a thousand of them, but I can't think of <laughs> any of them. <laughs> okay. Well, well, one thing that I like to do that, um, and I'll edit this a little bit out is about anything that we can plug, like any, any upcoming talks or books or, or anything we can promote of yours. Well, uh, the, the videos that I produce are at cleancoders.com. Uh, there's lots of, you know, educational videos for software developers going from, you know, basic clean code to design patterns to uh, agile software development to unit testing and all kinds of other topics. Uh, and I love these. I love doing these videos because I get to dress up like Spock. <laughs> <laughs> what software developer hasn't wanted to immerse himself in a Star Trek theme? Um, so those are fun. If you feel like going to those and, and watching them, those are great. Um, other than that, I don't really have any other plugs to make. Okay. Well, we'll include a link in the show notes. Uh, in addition to hopefully some of the other stuff we mentioned earlier in the episode. Uh, But otherwise, Uncle Bob, thanks for coming on. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer Podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Uncle Bob and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones. I'm really gonna spend the right. Well, I've been a doing my